The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. But the passages of Scripture that I want to go to tonight are found in chapter 9 of Romans, in verse, beginning in verse 10. Now, before we read it, I want to mention something that I realize that there are places in the Scripture that aren't as clear as others. There are some scriptures that, especially I'm thinking about the book of Revelation, you really have to rightly divide. You have to really dig. You have to study and, and, and compare scripture with scripture to be able to uh, really understand it. Now, every scripture is, uh, is to be taken in its context. Every scripture, there's no scripture that you can take out of context and, and say that, uh, oh, well, this means something that's contrary to the context. But, uh, but there are places in the Scripture, nonetheless, that are clearer than others. There are some places where God pretty much announces this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about the 13th chapter of Matthew, for example, and the parable of the sower. You say, well, that could be very, uh, uh, very hard to understand. But it might be, possibly. I think you could understand it anyway. But... But we don't have to worry about it because God, Jesus goes on and explains it. He tells us exactly what he's talking about a few verses later. Here in these verses, God is prompting the Apostle Paul very clearly to deal with a subject that there's, there's not much question about what it is because he tells us what he's talking about. And, and leading up to this, he's been talking to us about... Um, uh, the fact that uh, not all Israel is Israel. In other words, the promise God made to Abraham that in him all nations would be blessed and all of his, his seed would be as the sands of the sea didn't mean that every single one of his seed would be a natural Jew. It wouldn't, wouldn't be somebody by blood necessarily related. Uh, he says, you know, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. He says, uh, 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 neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. You remember uh, Isaac was the, uh, uh, was the chosen, uh, the, the miraculous birth there to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, he was the son in, through whom the seed would be called. And he goes on to tell us a little bit about that. And he's using this to illustrate a very important principle uh, of, of salvation unto us. And in verse 10, he says, and not only this, but when Rebekah, that is Isaac's wife, had also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, and now notice verse 11, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Now, I think we can safely say that the doctrine of election is under consideration here, can we not? Because here we see God saying, here I'm using these children to illustrate my purpose according to election. And, 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 and he lays the groundwork there. He said, it's not of works, but of him that calleth. You remember back in Romans 8, 28, he says to us, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to him who are the called according to his purpose. He's referencing the doctrine of election there. And by the way, I think we all understand here that, uh, that all things is not all things without exception because there are many things that don't work together with God that instead are working against us. 
In fact, we read about one in the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter, where it talks about the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And he says, these are contrary one to another. I know I've said this year before, but when my wife looks at me and says, you're really being contrary, she's not saying you're working with me. <laughs> she's saying, you're against me. <laughs> we're, we're not at this, on the same page, okay? And, uh, and so here we find that, that the doctrine of election is under consideration. In fact, in Romans 8 and 28, he talks about it initially there and then goes on to describe those things, whom he did foreknow, not what, but whom, whom he did foreknow, not who he knew about, whom he did foreknow. That is an intimate foreknowledge there that he talks about, that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe verse 2, where he says we are elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And, you know, if this said what he did foreknow, I might could buy into the explanation that people in the world, the denominational world, use about the doctrine of election where they say, oh, he looked down through time and saw what you would do. But that's not what it says. It says whom he foreknew. And by the way, he did look down through time and saw what we would do, and he concluded us all under sin. <laughs> Read Psalms, the 14th chapter sometime. He said, the Lord looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any that did seek him. And he said, they're all gone out of the way. They're all together become an unclean thing, you see. He has put us, he has concluded, if he did look down through time, brother buddy, and he did decide, make his choice based on our choice, then we would be in a mess. Because our choice is always going to be against God in, the, in nature. And we'll see that hopefully as we go through here. But, but anyway, we can see here that in the ninth chapter, he's talking about election, the purpose of God according to election, not of works, but of him that calleth. It says, and he goes on to further delineate it. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now I realize in the past, there was a lot more focus on Esau have I hated than on Jacob have I loved. Now, we have to understand that is there in the scriptures. Esau have I hated. That doesn't mean love less. That means hated. Now, you say, you mean God didn't love everybody. He says, for God so loved the world. Uh, well, we, we read that in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See there, God loves every single person in the whole wide world. Well, beloved, just like the word saved, you have to rightly divide the word world in order to understand it because I can also show you over in the 17th chapter of John the very same gospel uh, where that Jesus is praying just before he goes to heaven, just before he goes to the cross rather, and he, he says to the Lord there in verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. There's another world there that he's not praying for. So in one place he loves the world, but in another place he's not praying for the world. No, beloved, it's two different worlds he's talking about. One is a world of his children, the world of the elect of God. The other is a world of the non-elect. <laughs> the world like Brother Buddy was preaching about this morning. But to be that as it may, that's not the purpose of what I want to preach on tonight. By the way, we need to remember something here. It's not surprising, or it shouldn't be, if you understand depravity. And I'll tell you, beloved, if y'all, it doesn't take a theologian to understand depravity. If you're just honest with yourself, 
I, I'm not always honest with myself, but I try to be. But boy, when I am honest with myself, it hurts. If you're just honest with yourself, you can understand why God hated Esau. But you're going to have a hard time understanding why God loved Jacob. I have a hard time understanding why God loved me. Do you know, I have never done a purely good work in my life. Have you? Have you ever done, have you ever done something without any hint of self-motive, self-focus? You know, I've done some good things. Don't get me wrong. I've tried to, you know, I've given to the church. I've given to people. I've done things that, that on their face are good things. And we ought to keep doing them. We ought to keep trying. But have you, you ever thought about, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, I don't believe you're different than me. But in the back, maybe you are. But in the back of my mind, when I do a good work, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I wish Brother Buddy knew about it. <laughs> I wish the church knew about it. I wish somebody knew about it. If nothing else, it's tainted with the pride of wanting people to know how good I am, trying to be lifted up myself. See, the, the fall of Adam tainted everything. The fall of Adam concluded us all under sin. Because you see, it's not just that our works are bad. You can do good works, but God says to us in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that even our righteousnesses, that is those righteous works we do, are filthy rags in His sight. I want to tell you, beloved, if you try to bring your works of righteousness to the altar of eternal salvation, it will be nothing but a stench in the nostrils of God. Just like a pile of filthy rags. I've told this so many times about living alone when I was in an apartment over in Tuscaloosa for many years. And I'd, you know, I'd let my laundry pile up. Mama knows what I'm talking about. I'd let my laundry pile up. She'd tell me, I'd come home, uh, Brother Ralph, I'd come home. And I didn't, I mean, I hate, to, I know, I know, I realize I'm less of a man for this, but I don't know how to wash clothes, okay? Still to this day, I, I don't know. I have to ask and get help, okay? That's not a good thing, young men. You ought to know how to wash clothes. I need to learn. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to learn, Sherry. I really am. Sister Glenda's nodding at me right there. Hey, Amen. I need to know how to wash clothes. I get it. But I didn't know how to wash clothes then. I still don't to this day. But, uh, but back then, at that, in that day, uh, my dear mother washed my clothes. But she wasn't over there, you know. Uh, I think, I don't even know if we had a washing machine over there. Anyway, uh, I guess we did because we got... Sherry was over there for a, few, a year or two with me and after we married. But anyway, so I would, she would ask me, I can remember her asking me, did you bring your clothes home? Oh, I forgot, Mama, I forgot. So you know what was happening to those clothes? They were piling up. They were piling up. You know, I put them in the corner, I put them in the, in the hamper. And, and, and you know what happens when dirty clothes pile up for two or three weeks? They don't smell very good. Let me just put it that way, okay? You know what happens when you pile up a bunch of filthy rags? It just stinks. You see what I'm saying? God is not pleased with your works. He'll never be pleased with your works. You ought to do good. We ought to try to please Him. And we, let me just say it this way. We can please Him once we've been born again. But I'm talking about in the flesh, those works. And anything you would try to present to Him and say, God, this is why you ought to save me. I've, made, I've done these good works. I've made these good choices. I've made the right decisions about whether I should be one of your children or not. Whatever you want to do, that's all works, and they pile up and they stink in the sight of God. There was a time when 
Well, let me just move on. Let me just say this because I'm not going to get to where I want to go if I don't. After stating the issue, the proposition, Paul here writes it out. He says, this is about election, okay? And in fact, it's about the elder serving the younger. And, and even deeper than that, Jacob, it's about God loving Jacob and hating Esau, clearly setting forth two different categories of people, one that God loves, one category that God hates. They're representative, by the way. They're not just, we're not just talking about Jacob and Esau here. Many places in the scripture you read where Jacob is representative. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance, we're told in Deuteronomy 32. Well, he's not talking about Jacob the man. He's talking about Jacob as a representative of God's people. And whenever we talk about election, inevitably, one or two objections arise. And that's what I love about the scripture is that God prompted these men, inspired these men to write about those objections before they arise. <laughs> and, and so that's what I want to preach to you about tonight. There's a couple of objections. I don't know if I'll get to both of them, but there's a couple of objections here that are raised to the doctrine of election that he has set forth to us. And the first one is found in verse 13, or verse 14 rather. After setting forth clearly that this is about the purpose of God according to election, Paul says this, what shall, we then, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now that is the, usually the first objection I get when I'm trying to share the gospel of the sovereign grace of God with someone who does not already believe in the doctrine of election. And, and it's, it's essentially this. It says, is there unrighteousness with God? God, God wouldn't be righteous if the doctrine of election is true. In other words, it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be right for God uh, to, to do this because he didn't give everybody a chance. It wouldn't be fair if God doesn't give everyone a chance. Now, that's the first objection that I usually hear. And, and, I, and listen, let me say this too. When I'm, when I'm preaching about this, that's an, that is a... That's a good objection from, the, from a natural standpoint. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not running down anybody that tries to say that. You know, in that, you know we always are concerned about in, in, in our daily lives about uh, treating people fairly. You know, and all, you know we, we want to be treated fairly, right? <laughs> but the problem is this. This is the problem. Let, let, me, let, me, let me just skip to the end and say this. <laughs> The problem with being treated fairly is that if we're treated fairly in an eternal sense, there'll be no hope for us. You, you know, grace by definition is not fair. Mercy by definition is not fair. If a judge sitting on, a, on, a, on the bench today in the court of law uh, if someone comes before him and the judge shows him mercy, he has not treated him fairly. If he treats him fairly, he cannot show him mercy. You see, mercy and fairness don't work together. <laughs> They're not the same. And by the way, I don't, I don't want what I deserve. I, I don't want what's coming to me. You say, I just want to be treated fairly. Beloved, I need mercy I need grace. I don't need to be treated fairly. If I'm treated fairly, then I'm fairly going to hell. You see, the justice of God demands payment for sin, and I cannot pay for my own sin. Christ had to do that for me. 
So what shall we say then is the objection. Is there unrighteousness with God? Now I want you to notice the first answer God gives. I mean Paul gives. God gives through Paul I should say. God forbid. God forbid. Now I've used this example before. And we're going to see it a couple of times here, especially if the Lord, if we are able to get to it all tonight. When my daddy told me to do something, you know, he said, son, you go do this. Well, there were times I might have been a little puffed up, thought I knew better. And I'd look at him and say, why? <laughs> why? Probably didn't do it for one time, Brother Roger, but, you know, why? You know what his response was? Because I said so. <laughs> Because I said so. If I, if I come to God with a defiant attitude and say, well, God, I don't know why you did this. This wouldn't be right. Then most of the time, the first response that God is going to give us is, hey, you need to sit down and shut up because I'm God. <laughs> okay? Uh, I, I, I am God. You're not. Okay? God forbid. See that? God forbid is the first answer. Now, now the, flip, the, the, the second thing I want to say about it is, is in almost every case, maybe I did have a little defiance to start with, but, but there came a point where I was like, well, Daddy, why? I mean, really, why are we doing this? Can you explain it a little more? And you know what my daddy always did? He always explained it a little more. You know what God always does? He always explains it a little more. The first answer is often, hey, I'm God, and you don't need to be speaking right now. But he usually always comes and explains. And that's what happens here. That's what happens here. So first of all, notice, the answer is God. It wouldn't be fair if God didn't give everybody a chance. The first answer is God forbid. God forbid. First of all, he's saying, you don't understand God if you accuse him of unrighteousness in any way. Because, you know, Jeremiah tells us over in the 23rd chapter, I believe it is, that his name is the Lord, our righteousness. His very name is righteousness. God is righteous. His righteousness is an attribute of God. And he is always going to do right. In fact, did not Abraham ask the question of God in the 18th chapter of Genesis? As God is there speaking to him. And yes, I believe it's God that's speaking to him. And he says, I'm going down to Sodom and I'm going to destroy Sodom. And, and Abraham is trying to plead for Lot's life. And he looks at God and he says, shall not the God of all, I'm sorry, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You want to know how to, how to tell whether somebody's a righteous person or not? They do right. <laughs> they do right. And I don't mean righteous in themselves. I'm talking about living a righteous life. They do right. That's how you tell. God is the judge of all the earth. And you know, he's not just theoretically just. He does right. He's not just theoretically righteous. He does righteousness. You see. So God is righteous. And if you don't, if you accuse him of unrighteousness, you just don't understand God. Over in Psalm 116 and verse 5, he says this. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. <laughs> Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. You see here again, we find 
that God is described as righteous. But notice this, and this kind of leads us into our second point here. Yea, our God is merciful. Merciful. And, and that leads us to the next point about what he means, I believe, by saying God forbid. First of all, you don't understand God if, you, if you're accusing him of, right, of unrighteousness. You know, God's always righteous, no matter what he does. He's always righteous. You may not understand it, but he's righteous. Don't accuse him of unrighteousness. But secondly, you don't understand the doctrine of election if you're accusing God of unrighteousness because of that. If you say, well, wait a minute, God chose the people before the foundation of the world, and that's how we get to heaven? Well, God's just unrighteous. You don't understand the doctrine of election if you're accusing God of unrighteousness because of it. Because he says here, you remember what he said? He is merciful. He is merciful. And notice that, uh, that he goes on to further explain. First, he says, God forbid, don't question God. Don't cause him, uh, accuse him, rather, of being unrighteous. Because here's what election is truly about. Verse 15 is probably the best statement of the doctrine of election you'll find anywhere in the scripture. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. I know what people accuse us of and they do it legitimately because there's a lot of people out there that we call Calvinists that believe this. But remember, we're not Calvinists, and we don't believe this. They believe in something called double predestination. I'm going to come back to it in the second objection as well. But they believe that God chose a people before, down, before the foundation of the world and predestinated one set of people to heaven, and he actively predestinated a second set of people to hell. That's called double predestination, and we don't believe that. <laughs> we don't believe that because the Bible doesn't teach that. Beloved, we didn't need God's help getting to hell. Adam sent us merrily on our way to hell. We, and, and don't think you can get out of it blaming it on Adam's. You know, sometimes people, people get it, well, I don't, I don't like this idea that, I'm, uh, that, uh, that, that Adam was my representative. I, I, don't, you know, I don't like being represented like that. Well, let me just say this. This is a, not the perfect example, but if you don't like that kind of representation, you need to move to some other country because <laughs> that's what we do every day, isn't it? We elect people to go down to Washington, up to Washington or down to Montgomery to represent us. <laughs> We're in a representative uh, a, a republic is where we are, okay? We, we understand that concept here naturally, but beloved, uh, let me just say this about that. We sometimes elect the wrong people, don't we? Sometimes we send people to Washington that we think are going to be one way and they turn out to be another. God, in choosing our representative, being God, picked the perfect representative for us. He picked the exact right one to represent us in the Garden of Eden. You say, well, if I could just been there, it's not fair, because if I'd been there, I'd have done differently. You know what? You'd have probably done it quicker. That's the problem. Because, see, we're Adam multiplied. <laughs> we're Adam multiplied. God picked Adam to be our representative and, and by the way, you say, well, I don't like the fact that, er that, I didn't have, that everybody didn't have a chance. Well, everybody did have a chance in Adam, right? <laughs> everybody did have it. In a sense, everybody did have a chance in Adam. <laughs> God picked the best representative for us. Adam was the best representative for man and what man could be in an innocent state. 
By the way, he picked the perfect representative for us in Christ, didn't he? As a substitutionary sacrifice. But that's another message, okay? But God picked the perfect representative for us. Now, Adam wasn't perfect. If Adam was perfect, he wouldn't have sinned. Adam was innocent. Notice something about Adam. He did not have a sin nature. He didn't have a sin nature. He did, you know, Adam, Adam had to be born again later. <laughs> he wasn't born again and then lost his spiritual nature and then got it back at some other time. Adam was innocent. He was in an innocent state. And, and, and Adam shows us what we would be apart from Christ, even if we didn't have a sin nature. But that's another message as well. <laughs> even if we didn't have a sin nature, even if we were in an innocent state, we're still not God, are we? We're still not God. So, <clears throat> notice here what happened. God didn't predestinate some to hell and some to heaven. The predestination of God has nothing to do with his wrath. The electing grace of God has nothing to do with his wrath. His wrath is a fact. His wrath is a truth. His wrath is going to be poured out upon the wicked one day. But beloved, I want to say to you that the doctrine of election, if you accuse God of unrighteousness because of it, you're missing the point because it's all about mercy. It's all about compassion. He said, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Election is about the love and mercy and grace of God. Jeremiah 31 and verse 3 tells us it's an everlasting love affair. He says, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Beloved, let's please understand that the doctrine of election has nothing to do with his wrath and it has everything to do with his love. Praise God for that. I'm not discounting his wrath. His wrath is going to be poured out one day upon, uh, upon the, the reprobate, but he's, his electing grace is about mercy. Boy, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? <laughs> grace. And, and as I said already, grace by definition isn't fair. So it wouldn't be fair if he didn't give it. I don't want fair. Amazing fairness. How terrible the sound would be the song I'd have to sing there. As it is, I can sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Because fairness gets me to hell. Grace gets me to heaven. <laughs> By the way, if we only had a chance at salvation, we'd have no chance at salvation. You know why that is? Because in Adam, we all died. You know what that means? It means we're dead. Doesn't mean there's a little fan, little flame that you can fan. There's a little flame of spiritual life that you can fan and it can grow into some kind of bonfire? No. I know people, some, some people I've talked to have believed that, that there's a little flame in all of us. Beloved, there's no flame in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us so clearly, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. You know, I think the gospel is probably one of the strongest things of the Spirit of God I know. Wouldn't you say that that's a spiritual message? I believe it is. It was, it was spoken by Jesus Christ himself. The gospel of our salvation is, is spoken by Jesus. It's a spiritual thing. And, and we're told in 1 Corinthians 2.14, if you've only been born in nature, you've never been born of the Spirit, you've never been born again, then you will not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Beloved, uh, it's, it's the, as I've said many times here, Elder Michael Goins used this, and I, I, I quote him all the time on it. We're in such 
such a state in nature, that is, before being born again of the Spirit, we're in such a state in nature that we would not come to Him if we could, and we could not come to Him if we would. See, it says it's foolishness unto us in nature. If I don't have a spiritual nature, all this preaching is foolishness. The preaching of Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected, uh, that's foolishness. So many people there, there were some, there, was a, there were some people in the, in the book of Acts that were cut to the heart. <laughs> and they, they stoned Stephen to death. But there were some, praise God, that were pricked in the heart. And that's something a preacher can't do. That's something uh, that no, no one sharing the gospel can do. The Holy Spirit has to prick one in the heart. The Holy Spirit has to born one again. Jesus says, ye must be born again. Why? Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But praise God, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What happens in a birth? New life is created, right? There's life where there was no life before. In a natural birth, there's a new person. That person isn't just an extension of his parents. It's not just a, a part of its mother. It's a brand new thing. It's something new that's created in the womb of its mother. Beloved, in the creation, the creative act, rather, of the new birth, something new is created. He calls it uh, the new creation in Romans chapter 8. He talks about verse 20, the creature being made subject to vanity. That's not talking about the natural man there. That's talking about the new creation within side of us who is made subject to vanity, that is subject to an understanding that this world is nothing but emptiness, that this world is nothing but vanity. You know, before I was born again, I didn't see the world as anything but great. It was a good place to live. I was happy in the world. I was satisfied with the world. When, I've been, when I was born again, this new creature within me was no longer satisfied with the world. The the world is empty, beloved. The world is full of vanity. And by the way, he was created, he was made subject to vanity, not willingly. That means he didn't choose to do it. But by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. <laughs> Jesus said you got to be born again. You know why? Because in your natural state, the natural man will not receive the things of the kingdom of God. Because first of all, their foolishness unto him. John 5, 40 tells, Jesus says, you will not come unto me that you might have eternal life. That's not an invitation. That's an indictment. That's an indictment of human nature. And by the way, not only won't you do it, you couldn't do it if you wanted to. You couldn't do it if you wanted to. He says, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Do you know what, by the way, the good news about that is? If you find yourself wanting to come to him, that's the strongest evidence you'll ever have that you are one of his. And you have been born again. You see, a dead man knows nothing in the realm to which he's dead. Over in Ecclesiastes, the seventh chapter, I believe it is, I can get there. The book of Ecclesiastes is a sad book, really. It's, it's a sad book talking about under the sun, but there's great wisdom in this book. And in the seventh chapter, I'm sorry, it's the ninth chapter. The ninth chapter, and uh, let's just begin reading in verse four. For to him that is joined to all the living, there's hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. In other words, you know, Life is better than death, is what he's saying here. Now listen to this. You want to know what it means to be dead? Well, this is an example of natural death. And there's a reason God used spiritual death 
He used the term dead to describe the state we're in spiritually before we're born again. He said, for the living know that they shall die. In other words, the living, living know some things about the situation they're in. <laughs> the living know, you know, if you're alive, you know that uh, you're hungry, you know you're thirsty. That's why even the, the animals out there uh, struggle to eat and to, and to rest and to, to, to stay active because they know they need to do that to stay alive. But the dead know not anything. You know what? You don't want to know what a dead man spiritually knows spiritually? Not anything. That's why we don't, I, I don't, I heard Brother Buddy preach on this before. And, and I, I agree with Brother Buddy. I've always kind of had a fear of being buried alive, okay? You know, some of the worst horror stories that Stephen King or anybody else ever wrote to me are just, it's just, it's, it's paralyzing and fear. It's those that are, Buried in a coffin in the ground, but they're still alive. <laughs> you know, boy, that gives me chills just thinking about it, you know. But, but you know why I'm not worried about being buried out here in the cemetery when I die? I'm not going to know it. You know why? Because I'm dead to the physical world. And I don't know that I'm dead. I don't, I'm not worried about the coffin. I'm not worried about that that's covering me in that small space. I'm claustrophobic. I'm not worried about that because I will not know it. But by the like token, there's a reason God said we're dead in trespasses and sins. He knew we could understand that because we know what it means to be dead naturally. To be dead spiritually means you don't know anything spiritually. If all we had was a chance in nature, we would have no chance because we are dead to that realm which God would require us according to the world to operate in. The message of the world, by the way, the message of the gospel to the world is not about the Savior. It's about the sinner and what the sinner must do. The true gospel is about the Savior and what he has done, you see. It just wouldn't be fair if God didn't give everybody a chance. But he says, God forbid, because listen, it's not about fairness and it's not about chance. It's about mercy and about compassion. And by the way, verse 16 clears up the matter. If you have any questions about it, it's not of him that willeth. That's the primary message we have in the world is you've got to exercise your will in order to become a child of God. But he says it's not about him that willeth. It's not of him that willeth. Well, others teach, and I have a good friend who is uh, in a very uh, 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 worldwide denomination, I'll call it that, who, who struggles all the time. He tells me all the time, I just hope when Judgment Day comes that the good I've done in my later years will outweigh all the bad I did in my younger years. And he struggles with that. But praise God, it's not of him that runneth or does works. It's not about somebody having to run and win the race. We hear that, well, you've got to run and win the race. Well, we ought to run and win the race, but praise God, the only race that really matters is the one Christ ran and won. But of God that showeth mercy. <laughs> Praise God. Let me, let me try to deal with a second objection best I can. I think I've got a few minutes. So he goes on here. He goes on here. Verse 17. For, and always keep, that connects it. See, he's still talking about the purpose of God according to election. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, 
that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And now we come to the second objection based partly on what he just said here. He says, Thou wilt then say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? The second objection goes something like this. It just wouldn't be fair for God to send, uh, to, for the doctrine of election to be true because God made me the way I am anyway and caused me to live like I live. In other words, this is the absoluter's objection. That God has, has pre-programmed everybody to, to act in a certain way and He has de, uh, predestinated them to do the, these things. Now, uh, so it wouldn't be fair because God just made me this way. Why doth He yet find fault? For who hath resisted His will? Everything that happens is God's will. How come He could find fault? That's what the Calvinist says. Calvinist says Adam was predestinated to fall. They say he was, God, God made Adam sin, and therefore, uh, so he could show his glory and mercy. Well, by the way, there's a clear, clear answer to that back in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. For, by, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, if God absolutely predestinated and determined beforehand all things that happened, including the fall of Adam, then it was Adam's obedience and not disobedience. But here we read about Adam's disobedience. God wouldn't be calling it something it's not, you see. Adam went contrary to the will of God. Now, once again, we find this two-part answer, by the way. <laughs> he says... Why doth he yet find fault? You'll say unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? We're just robots out here doing, well, again, you misunderstand election. And first of all, he says, nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? The first thing he reminds us of, he says, I am God and you're not. You know, that goes a long way. We need to remember that. Don't we sometimes get mixed up on that? You say, well, I've never said that. Well, have you acted that way? Have you ever been so angry at somebody? You know, we drove 1,800 miles over the past few days to get home. And I'll tell you, we got into some traffic. We got into some, <laughs> we got in two or three different times. We got into road construction on the interstate. Why? Do they shut down the interstate? I know they got to fix it, but I was so upset. You know, why do they have to do that? I was sitting here talking to Sherry, and I had just preached on this the night before. I'm not God, you know. I'm not God. I don't get what, I, you know, I, I don't deserve to have a clear path home. <laughs> Nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? In other words, wait a minute. You're questioning God. Who are you to question God? Who are we to question God? He's God. You're not. He's the creator. You're the creation. He's the potter. You're the clay. We don't get to question him. Whatever he does. He's already told us that if we're accusing him of unrighteousness, we're not understanding him. But he's also telling us you can't question him anyway. No matter what he does. You're the creation. He's the creator. You know, Job, Job thought he wanted to dispute with God. I'm not going to turn there and read it, but you can turn over the 23rd chapter of Job. 
Job says, boy, I just wish I knew where God was. This is my words. I wish I knew where he was. I wish he'd come down. I'd set forth my case. I would order my cause before him. You know what happened when God did show up? (laughs) In chapter 38, he said, I'm going to ask some questions. And you're going to give me some answers. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Now, if you were there, and I'm, again, this is my, you go read it. But essentially what I believe he's saying there is, Job, now if you were there, when I created the earth, we can talk. Otherwise, you need to stay silent. And of course, that's what Job came to the conclusion of over in the 40th chapter. He said, I've spoken once, yea, twice, but now I'm going to lay my hand on my mouth. You know, that's usually what happens. We have these big ideas about God, right? Oh, I would love to talk to God. I'd love to share my, I'd love to share my thoughts with him. I've got to question him about But when he shows up, we just hit the ground. When Isaiah saw him high and lifted up, he hit the ground. You know what he said? He didn't have all these arguments about, well, God, I think this and I think that. He just says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the king. We ever get a vision of God as great as he really is, we won't have any questions to ask him. We'll just be falling at his feet in awe and fear and praise. He says, who are you to question God? I'm the potter. He says, verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? You know, I believe the lump he's talking about there is Isaac. Isaac is the father. And, and, and out of Isaac, he made one lump that was a lump unto honor and another that was a lump unto dishonor. Two children born, twins. One it says he loved, the other says he hated. One lump unto honor, another unto dishonor, one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor. Now again, let me, let me, let me just tell you the problem with this, with this objection as we, as we bring this hopefully to a close here in a few minutes. The people who make this objection are confusing predestination and providence. Now there is providence. God is a providential God. God is a, a God of overruling providence. He's a God who... Uh, who when evil, wicked men do evil, wicked things, he's able to overrule those evil, wicked things and make something happen that's good and glorifying to him. Just like Joseph. Take Joseph for an example. His brothers acted wickedly in throwing him in the pit and then selling him into slavery. God didn't make them do that. But God overruled that for his own glory and for the benefit of his children. He saved much people alive through his providence, but not through his predestination. We are not absoluters. We do not believe God predestinated those things. That would make God the author of sin. I've talked to some absoluters who say, well, no, God's not the author of sin. He does it in such a way that he's uh, able to not be the author of sin. Well, how is that, I would ask them. They say, well, I don't know. It's more than I can figure out. Well, listen, beloved, the reason it's more than you can figure out is it's not true. (laughs) It wouldn't make him. If God makes you do something that's sinful, you've made God the author of sin. Don't confuse providence and predestination. James tells us that let no man say when he's tempted that he's tempted of God. Notice though here he did say something that's interesting. I I do want to just deal with this just for a minute. He says in verse 17 to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up 
that I might show my power in thee, and that my name, that is God's name, might be declared through all the earth. He says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. You go back over to the book of Exodus, you're going to find where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, wait a minute, what does that mean? Wait, does, is that not absolute predestination coming out there? Well, if you go back and look initially, the first ten times it occurs, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Then later it says God hardened his heart. So what is happening here? How does God, so if God is not the author of sin and God is not absolutely predestinating all things that occur, what is it that's happening here? How did he do this? Well, just because, well, let me, let me put it, Pharaoh by nature, Pharaoh by nature was a wicked man. He was, as far as I can tell, he was not a child of God. If he became, you know, if he changed later in life, we're not told about that. But we, I believe he was a, a reprobate. I do not believe he was a child of God. God did not make him do anything that he was not already prone to do. He didn't make him do anything that he by nature was not already intent on doing. Just because God knows the depths of man's depravity does not make God the author of depravity or its cause. God just know, You know, God knows how depraved I am better than I know how depraved I am. I think I know myself pretty well, but I still haven't plumbed the depths of my depravity. I haven't done as bad as I could. I haven't gone as far into the depths as I could. I haven't ended up in the pigsty yet like the prodigal son, but God knows where I could end up. He knows how bad I am. He knows how big of a wretch that I am. And he knows that about you too, by the way. And he knew it about Pharaoh. He didn't have to predestinate Pharaoh to do anything. And when it says he hardened him, well, how does he harden him? I believe God hardens the heart of the reprobate in much the same way he tenders the heart of the regenerate, the one who's already born again. He does it by manifesting his power and revealing his glory. You know, by manifesting His power to you and I, if we're children of God who've been born again and we're living in that spiritual sense and we're following the Spirit, when God reveals His glory and God reveals His power, it's going to tender our hearts. It's going to make us fall to our knees. But if we are not, if we did not have that spiritual nature, if we only had that nature that is the wicked nature of Pharaoh, when God reveals His power and glory, it makes that person harder. The same sun that melts the ice bakes the clay you see what i'm saying god in much the same way that he tenders the heart of one who's born again he hardens the heart of one who's not you know the more he revealed his glory the more he the more he uh, did what god does which is do right in all things the harder it made pharaoh's heart so let's, let's close this out by talking about the true relationship between God and the reprobate and the regenerate. Verse 22. What if God, <clears throat> willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And verse 23 and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Notice something here. We're told that 
there's two categories of people he's talking about here, vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Two categories that are also represented by Jacob and Esau. Jacob, vessel of mercy, Esau, a vessel of wrath. And notice that it says, the vessels of wrath are endured with much long suffering by God. You know, probably one of the best words in the English language to describe God's relationship to the, to the sinful and wicked is the word suffer. He suffers sin. He suffers these vessels of wrath. He endures them. The word endure literally means to carry a burden. Or to, and, and another uh, Strong's Concordance tells us that, that another possible definition of that is to endure the rigor of a thing or to bear patiently one's conduct. That's what God is doing here with the vessels of wrath. You know, he, he says he endures the vessels of wrath with much long suffering. He doesn't cause the vessels of wrath to commit these wrathful acts. And notice back over in, um, over in Psalm 76 and verse 10, we also get an insight into what God does with the, um, with the wicked. Notice it says in Psalm 76 and verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. You know what, God, this, this tells us something about how God deals with the wrath of man. He, he, he restrains it from time to time. Sometimes he lets it occur. He suffers it to happen. But overall, he providentially overrules it to his glory. And these vessels of wrath, we're told, are fitted to destruction. But notice it didn't say God fitted them to destruction. We don't believe in double predestination, as I've said already. They are fitted to destruction. How are they fitted to destruction? We've already read about it, but turn back with me quickly to Romans chapter 5. And let's look at verse 12 just for a minute. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. He's talking about Adam here. You want to know why sin is in the world? It's not because of God. It's not even really because of the devil. The devil could have tempted Adam and Adam could have resisted that, but he didn't. It's because of Adam. Sin entered into the world and death by sin and death passed therefore upon all men. And you say, well, boy, I just wish I'd been there. That doesn't seem right that I was, that, you know, I, I'd, I'm all right, but, but Adam condemned me. Well, no, you're not off the hook. You're not off the hook. Notice that it, by one man sin entered, sin entered into the world. But notice that now it says, for that all have sinned. Can you stand here today and say, I'm not a sinner? If you say that, you're sinning. <laughs> if you say, I'm not a sinner, I'm not, I've learned to live above sin. No, beloved, you haven't. You're never going to get there. Because you have that nature within you. And you, yes, you have the nature, but that's not all you have. You also have the desire and you do the acts. You see, you're a sinner by nature, but by choice and practice as well. God didn't fit these vessels of wrath to destruction, but they are fitted to destruction. But notice in verse 23, as we bring this to a close, it says, this doctrine of election, this, this, this fact of election is on the one hand glorifying to God in that ultimately His wrath will be poured out upon the wicked. 
but, it, but also and probably primarily more so that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Notice this. Again, the doctrine of election is about the riches of his glory and not the wrath of God. The doctrine of election is about the mercy and grace and the glorious love that he had for these vessels of mercy who could not save themselves, who could not prepare themselves unto glory. Notice over in the 25th chapter of Matthew, as he's separating the sheep on the one hand from the goats on the other, he tells the sheep, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. When? When you made a decision, when you did right, when you lived right, at the end of your life, when you weighed out all of your righteous and, and, and sinful acts and your righteous outweighed your sin. No. The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's why he tells us in Ephesians 1.4 that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means nobody was here, not even Adam. Before, not at the foundation even. He said before the foundation of the world. So it's clear to us that he alone gets the glory in election. And these vessels of mercy, he had afore prepared them unto glory. Praise God. Praise God for his glorious grace. I hope we can answer these objections and answer them in love. Because let me tell you, beloved, there's no greater loving more loving doctrine in the scripture than the doctrine of election because it talks about this everlasting love he had for his people see without that we'd have no hope if it was on us we couldn't do it jesus had to walk that road alone you ever get angry i've heard pre preachers preach angry about the doctrine there's nothing to get mad about about the doctrine of election there's, listen, we all struggle with that sometimes. Sometimes I like to be right. You know, one time there was one time in my life where I just wanted to be right. You know, I just, I just, it was enough for me that I was right and the others were wrong. Let me tell you, that's not enough for me anymore. It's, it shouldn't be enough for us. I want every one of God's children to see how glorious our God is and how wonderful his electing grace is. And it's not about his wrath. It's about his mercy. It's not about us just being the way we are because God made us that way. See, what God did is he made us righteousness in Christ when we otherwise would have been simply reprobates in the world. May the Lord add his blessings to these words. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.